Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All right, welcome to another episode of Talking Ball with Pat Leonard. Got to admit, very excited for this one. Before I introduce our special guest, want to tell you about Bet Online. Football is back. Bet Online is your number one information source for all your sports wagering info with all the up to the minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals from the NFL College Football at your fingertips with Bet Online's real time updates on stats, news, and odds. From week one all the way to the college football playoff and Super Bowl, Bet Online gives you access to the best football promotions and contests available anywhere online. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Remember to use our promo code BELIEVE. To receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit, bet online where the game starts. Also, if you are a golfer or a Notre Dame fan or both in the New York, New Jersey area, the Northern New Jersey Club of Notre Dame is hosting a golf outing, the Angelo Bertelli Memorial Golf Classic, Thursday, October 5th, this uh, coming week, next week at Berkshire Valley Golf Course in Oak Ridge, New Jersey. If you want to play in it, if you want to sponsor it to raise money for scholarships for students at Notre Dame, reach out to me at my email, pleonard at nydailynews.com, or you can reach out to Kevin Murphy, kmurphy at lumlaw.com. That's kmurphy at l-u-m-l-a-w.com. Without further ado, we get to our special guest, my former co-worker and colleague at the New York Daily News, former host of the Popcast, which, which is no, no longer alive and well at the Daily News because this talented gentleman went out west, went to California. He is now the senior writer covering the Los Angeles Chargers at The Athletic. He is Daniel Popper. Pop, what's up, man? What an intro. Yeah, I was thinking back <laughs> to those days when I was recording that podcast in the old DVR room in the Daily News building about 120 degrees in there because they had about 70 DVRs going at the same time. It was the only space that they gave me and I go in there and sweat for about an hour and a half while I put the podcast together. But you were always a gracious guest. I don't know if you ever came into the closet that I recorded it in, but you would call in, you would call in frequently, which I was always very appreciative of as a, as a youngling at the Daily News. I'm also, I'm actually upset now that I'd never had to climb into that tiny crawl space you're describing yeah. to do it live in person. Cause it feels like that would have been an experience I never forgot, but you were, you were always so good at kind of building that at the daily news, covering the giants, covering the jets, covering whatever you were on. No surprise. You are thriving at the athletic, but before we get into football, Daniel Popper, I need to tell people and you need to tell people about right. the person known as pear pear. Now my alter ego, Daniel Popper's alter ego, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just introduce it as this, and then Pop, you can take it from there. So Daniel Popper, by day, is the athletic senior writer covering the Chargers. By night, he is a house music producer known as Pear Pear. Now, this is important to me because not only is the music good, but Pop, I don't know if I told you this yet, but I write to instrumental music. And my playlist started with pretty lights the producer oh yeah and has evolved from there i have to give you credit for a lot of my inspiration over the last couple of months because when i fire up music to write my game stories to write my most important stories right now i'm, I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast i start with pear pear and it gets me going it gets my mind going you have the new ep the attraction but i i just i guess I have to ask you how did this come about 
what made you start producing music? What are the origins of this? Like, please tell us all about it. Yeah, well, I appreciate all of that. I, I can confidently say that you're my number two biggest fan behind <laughs> my mother. So maybe we can get you. A I'll never, I'm never catching her. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can get you a plaque to hang up behind there in that nice studio you've got set up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I fell in love with house music, you know, when I was in college, you know, like 2011, 2012, when Avicii was coming up, um, you know, Calvin Harris, like all of those, you know, that era of house music is really what I what I fell in love with Porter Robinson, you know, I can sort of go down the list of the people that really like inspired me when I was young. And so when I was in college, like, everyone has time in college. And, um, and so like, you know, downloaded a free trial of the program Ableton, which is just like a music production program. And, you know, was messing around with it, like didn't take it too seriously, like made a couple songs, put them up on SoundCloud. You know, one of them ended up like finding some sort of pathway to a thousand plays on SoundCloud. I don't know what happened there. I might've just used the right hashtag or something because listening to it now, it's atrocious. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like as I got like more into the school newspaper at Maryland where I went to, to school, to college, like, and just like work, you know, became a bigger part of my life. Like journalism became a bigger part of my life. I just didn't have time and sort of drifted away from it. Obviously, like, you know, at a college internship at the Daily News, like, like you mentioned, like I, I wrote about everything sports related in New York City. I was like working seven days a week trying to make like a, a name for myself and carve out a role at the Daily News. And so just drifted away from it. And then obviously the pandemic happened. And, you know, that was like springtime for us, like pretty low key time of the year. Um, there wasn't anything to go to, no OTAs to go to, anything like that. We were doing some draft coverage, but I was spending every day like at home. And I would do my work, my football work. And then it was like, you know, what do I do now? You know? And so, mm -hmm. you know, Ableton, the, the, the software that I was using in college did a, uh, you know, a, not a big free trial push during the pandemic because they knew people were, had nothing to do and like maybe people would download it. So I, I got back into it and just like that love for it, you know, emerged again. And I was like reinvigorated into like making it. And just, that was what, like two, two and a half years ago about yeah. three a little over three years ago now um and just like sort of kept going with it uh, i have to give a shout out to, to my really good friend tommy who lives with me out here in la who i went to college with and we sort of fell in love with house music at the same time he never drifted away from it um and so he like kept going with it and so since i moved out here and got back into it he's been really helpful in terms of like a lot of the like production side of things like because it's very intense very time consuming very detail oriented and a lot of that like technical stuff he's helped me out with a lot and so now i just like you know spend my free times, you know, doing music. It's really what I love to do. And, and, you know, so like in the off season, when I have a little bit more time, I spend all my time making music, trying to line up, you know, releases for the season. I don't have as much time right now, but that's a long winded say way, way of saying that. Yeah. Like, you know, like everyone else, I tried to find a, a hobby during the pandemic and sort of fell back in love with something that I was doing in college a lot. But this, I mean, this production is, is serious. It looked, you're on a, an official label, correct? Like you have, yeah you have a deal and you are, you are working with a company that is working with you on the timing of these releases and everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. So basically how it works is you like, you finish a track and then you send it or multiple tracks if you're doing like an EP and then you send them out to labels that you want to get on basically. And so, um, you know, I've had a couple of releases, with like a small label in Spain, you sort of have to like work your way up. And then like the, as the quality of your productions get better, like there's a certain threshold you have to meet to get on some of like the bigger labels in the house music scene. And so I started with like a small label in Spain and then, you know, moved up to a, like a small label in Brazil. And then, you know, the most recent release was like a Latvian label that has a sort of a bigger following on Spotify. And then coming up next month, I actually have like my biggest release 
yet with uh, a pretty big like Australian label in the, you know, in the house music scene, but I, I make music in like the melodic, melodic house scene, progressive house scene. It's like, uh, you know, definitely gonna be my biggest release yet. So a lot of it is, you know, I love the making music part of it. There is a lot of like administrative aspects to it though. So like, you know, for somebody like me that like doesn't have a management team or anything like that, you know, like I'm sending it to labels, I'm finding the labels, coordinating the contracts, all that kind of stuff. But I'm not like, you know, you, you basically make a deal on royalties. So you split it 50, 50, um, okay. but, you need, but in order to get any money out of it, you need to get like tens of thousands, if hundreds of thousands of plays on Spotify to see like any money from it. Do any of the Chargers players or coaches or NFL sources, uh, are they listeners or do they have like responses to this or are they aware of this or have you kept it on the download to this point? Yeah, it's more players, you know, like, cause you, you get like a lot of players, like, um, you know, are interested in, in, you know, more hip hop stuff, but like the production side of it is there's a lot of crossover between different, you know, genres of music. Um, and so Sony Michelle was actually somebody who was a Chargers running back for a year last year. He just retired, but he was actually like a sort of getting into like hip hop production. And so we'd chat about it a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's more like the player side, which is like understandable, you know, young people with all of our interests and, uh, yeah. you know, especially like, you know, the amount of music that gets played in the locker room and that sort of thing. And uh, actually like, I haven't talked to Joey Bosa about it yet, but Joey Bosa was dabbling in some production back in his Ohio state days. Some Chargers Ooh. fans like uncovered some, uh, <laughs> some like 2013 like joey bosa productions like the, the picture of his soundcloud is him at ultra music festival which i went to in like 2013 so i have Beautiful. to bring that up with him but yeah it's more players than anyone else you know the football guys in the in the front office or in the coaching staff they don't have a ton of time for, for <laughs> they could be listening while they watch film though but okay yeah. last thing uh pair pair are you gonna leave us hanging on where that what the origins of the name is or um where did you develop the name as I said, I started making music in college. So it was just like a dumb name that I came up with in college. Um, I'm not dumb. Play on the last name, Popper, Pear Pear. And then, uh, you know, I I'm going to tell you this because I like you, Pat. But like we, <laughs> I used to walk into like rooms in my fraternity house and do like the air horn noise as like an entrance. <laughs> like, I love bah, bah. And so it was also an, onom it was a play on the last name and also an onomatopoeia for the dumb air horn, horn noise I would make when I walked into other people's rooms in college. Wait, that was a really good air horn though. I mean, that's, that, so you've practiced the air horn basically as much of, as you've worked on these songs. Yeah, I think that's my greatest talent is my ability to recreate the air horn with my mouth. Well, <laughs> yeah, next, next time I have you on, we're going to have to introduce you as the air horn extraordinaire as well. Yeah. I love it. That was, that conversation was everything I wanted to be in more. Now let's get right to the Chargers. Right. You are all over the Chargers. Frankly, I've heard you cited all over the place. Anybody who's talking about the Chargers, I feel like isn't an expert, but you are. I heard Colin Cowherd referencing you. Mm -hmm. I heard them talking about you on ESPN. You really do bring great insight to the team. But I want to ask you a big question right off the bat. Okay. And I know this is a hypothetical, but if, if they had lost that game against the Vikings, given how it went, do you think Brandon Staley would have gotten fired at 0-3? No, no. I, just the way the organization operates, they they don't really make moves in season. Um, they, they were gonna they're gonna give him a shot to to see this thing out. You know, zero and three. No, like with one caveat. Like if they're zero and twelve, like right, like that kind yeah. of changes things. Like, do you want to get a head start? Like at zero and twelve, you're not going to bring it back, obviously. And so, like that changes things. But but you know, they did the same thing with Anthony Lynn. It got really bad in that last season of of Anthony Lynn's tenure. 
Um, I don't know if you remember the 45 to nothing loss to the Patriots at home. They couldn't get the right number of players in the field for multiple special teams plays after Anthony Lynn had taken over special teams coordination from George Stewart. Didn't fire George Stewart, just moved him to another role on the staff. And so it got really messy there at the end in terms of game management mistakes, in terms of stuff like as simple as getting the right number of players in the field. And they still let Anthony, you know, finish out the season, even though the writing was on the wall. So I don't sure. think they would have, um, you know, if you're sort of getting to the fourth down decision, which is, which, you know, a lot of people obviously <laughs> were talking about. Yeah, let's go. Let's go right there. Like yeah. they know that that's how he's going to make decisions. So you know, if, if you if you are a head coach who is going to trust in your analytics staff and make decisions based off the math, that's a go for every team in the league. Now, like not I'm not saying every coach would go for it, but that's because some coaches wouldn't listen to their analytics staff. But the people that are listening to their analytics staff, that is 100 percent a go every single time. And so like I don't, like and you have to sort of separate the process from the results. So like Brandon and the whole front office and ownership, like they're all aligned in terms of this is how we're going to make decisions. And so I don't think that really had any effect on, on, uh, you know, how they would have sort of viewed, you know, Brandon Staley's job after the game. It would have been more like, Oh, and three, as opposed to like that specific decision. But didn't Staley, you're right. That's how he came in as the chargers coach and it's his MO, but didn't he back off of some of the, those, yeah. let's just call them dangerous or seemingly reckless to the outside non-analytics community decisions. Didn't he back off of those last year? Yeah, so he—I mean—he was making decisions pretty closely aligned with the math in year one, um, year two, and year three. It's been a little bit different now. There's so—I don't think it's necessarily that he's like reacting to the backlash um, that he's received over some of these decisions. I think they have a much better punt team. They went out and signed J.K. Scott last year, who was really good. They went out and signed an All-Pro long snapper and Josh Harris. The punt team overall is better. It was atrocious in year one. And then I think Staley has more confidence in his defense. Now, should he have more confidence in his defense? We can sort of have that conversation. I don't think so. Um, but my biggest issue with it is that he is deviating from the math at times. And if you're going to make decisions like that in those moments, like you just got to stick with it and be really consistent with it to really see the fruits of that labor. Um, yeah. I point to a fourth and two from the Tennessee 45 yard line in week two. That should have been a go and he punted it away. Now, like it ended up working out for them because they pinned the Titans deep, got the ball back and scored a touchdown. Um, but again, like the whole point of this is separating the process from the results. And, you know, that probably should have been a go. But like, again, you know, when the math is like that convincing, which it was in that situation, like that's going to be a go. You're talking about gaining like anywhere from like seven to 10% in win probability. And like when the math is that convincing, he's been pretty consistent. Like the other ones, you could sort of argue that they're more of a toss up um, from a math standpoint, depending on how the chargers are modeling. Now, like the tough part of this is, and we get, we're getting it in the weeds here, but like, you know, the tough part of this is like, you know, the models that exist, whether that's, you know, our former colleague, Seth Walder, what he does at ESPN. I think he does a great job. You know, Ben yeah. Baldwin has a, has a model, you know, the New York times used to have a model. All these models are more surface level than what teams are doing. Like people like to talk about these models, like, oh, it doesn't factor in this. It doesn't factor in that. Like these analytics staffers are extremely smart math people and statistics people, and they can model for everything, like mm. everything. We're talking about weather, we're talking about field conditions. We're talking about personnel. We're talking about everything. Like everything you think that doesn't go into these decisions is going into these decisions. Um, and so like, it's hard to sit here and say, okay, this was the math of this, of the decision. We can get like 80% of the way there with some of the modeling that happens through some of these things that I mentioned, like through ESPN and, and, and through Ben Baldwin, all these types of things. Um, but you're not getting to the granular level that the teams are getting to 
and the specificity that the teams are getting to with some of these other things. So we can have, sort of have like a ballpark, a general idea, but not necessarily like the specifics of, of the math itself. My issue isn't necessarily actually going for it, though. I do think the Vikings offensive line is so bad. I felt like if you make them go 70 yards there, I think you're going to disrupt Cousins and, and stop them. But my issue is more that they ran it instead of threw it, because at that point, it's not about keeping the clock running. It's about getting the first down. And, you know, watching that game, I mean, Herbert was completing passes at will. I mean, it was not difficult for him to complete a pass. In fact, I loved the offensive game plan and the Chargers really overall game plan from the standpoint of Flores back in the defense off and they just took what they gave him, took what they gave him, took what they gave him. And then they kind of set up some of those deep shots, you know, the throwback from Keenan Allen and Mike Williams. Like I really thought they coached a smart game yeah. all the way until that play. And I, I understand handing it off as well in, you know, in a vacuum. But to me, it's just like, the issue with the Seahawks, like in the Super Bowl, not running it on the goal line against the Patriots, it's not about running it. It's about Marshawn's your best player and give him the ball. So for me, it's more like, well, if you're the Chargers, the ball should be in Justin Herbert's hands there. So I, I'm less, um, you know, having my up and my arms up about why would you go for it? For mm. me, it's about what the heck are you doing taking the ball out of your quarterback's hands when you couldn't run the ball all day and you completed passes at will. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. Um, you know, the, the, you know, Flores blitzed on over 83% of Herbert's dropbacks, which is just insane. And he was playing, a, you know, close to 70% man coverage behind it. And so, and they didn't have a corner to match up with Keenan Allen. And that's what it yeah. came down to. And Keenan was just cooking like every corner that they put on him. So like, but fourth and inches, right? Like, let's, let's say like, let's say they do run that play. They're like, okay, we're going to hit Keenan on a slant at a shotgun, right? They run that play. The Vikings cornerback makes a play on the ball. It's deflected. They don't get the first down. I mean, everyone is crushing that play call. How could you not run it? All you needed was six in inches. Why didn't you sneak it? So like the Monday morning quarterback thing for me is a little bit difficult. What I would prefer to do is like, okay, let's look at the play call and what actually was it and what were they trying to accomplish? Okay. And yeah. so if you look at the a fourth and one from Titans territory in the second quarter in week two, they ran a play out of the exact same formation with the exact same personnel with the exact same motion. Okay. And what they did is they faked the handoff to Kelly, Joshua Kelly, who was in the fullback position on the fullback dive, faked the handoff and pitched to Darius Davis, their speed receiver. And, and Davis took that for a first down. Now in this game, the only change was that Keenan Allen was in for Mike Williams because Williams had torn his, his ACL. That was the only reason, but it's the same motion, same look and everything. But instead of faking the pitch to Kelly, faking the handoff to Kelly and pitching to Davis, they handed off to Kelly. So they were like, there wasn't tension in the play call. They were playing off a tendency that they had shown on film in that fourth and short situation. And if you watch the film back, the Vikings were prepared for them to pitch to Davis. Their edge rusher kind of jumped to the outside and the chargers had what they wanted, which was a double team to the right with Donald Parham, the tight end and the right tackle Trey Pipkins on a defensive lineman there. That's where the play was supposed to go. The two players just whiffed on the double team and that penetration is what blew up the play. So yeah, like on a broad level, like don't take the ball out of Justin Herbert's hands, but I can understand the intention behind the play call. It's not like they just went out there and like tried to run a play. They were, yeah, they were right. sort of like, you know, you know, creating a variation off a very similar, the same exact look, frankly, that they had in the previous game. And they did kind of get the Vikings in the position they wanted, but ultimately like the players have to execute the block. And so, like, I think you can criticize Kellen Moore for the play call and Brandon Staley because he was involved. 
Um, but I think like that, de those details and that context is important when you're discussing like the specifics of the play call. No, that's really valuable context. Um, I also will give Staley credit for this, you know, outside looking in when you see the results and some of the question decisions at the end of the losses and you know the history, you say, wow, Staley's really in trouble. When I went back and watched the film of this Vikings game, I was not expecting to see a team that played at, as hard as the Chargers did, right? Like when coaches are on the hot seat and about to possibly lose their jobs, you see guys not finishing plays, you see guys giving up, you see guys with their shoulders slumped and their heads down. That's not what I saw watching this film. Like Aloe Gilman and guys on the defense are ripping the ball out, um, you know, there was a tackle by, who was it, Davis keeping, I think it was Hawkinson, somebody inbounds at the end of the second uh, quarter to end yeah, the half. That was a great like, play. These are effort plays, right? They're smart plays, they're effort plays. And I will say this, like as much as I also am second guessing some of the things that Staley's doing, when I watch that game, and tell me if you agree, I see a team that's fighting for him. Am I wrong? No, no, you're right. Like effort's right. never been the issue. Like I think that he is a very skilled motivator. Um and the way he goes about it is is very interesting to me. Like he's he's very truthful. Um, he lays out the specifics of how they how they're going to win a game. Um, he t mm -hmm. like you know he's he's doesn't hold back in meetings in terms of like getting after people and 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 showing on film like what needs to get better. And I think like that builds a trust factor with your players when you're that open and, and honest about things. And so like motivation, effort, like all that stuff. Like I think he's excellent at that. The problem is like he's he was hired because he's you know, regarded as a defensive genius and a great, you know, defensive coach schematically. And they've just had a bad defense throughout his tenure. And the Chargers went out and spent more cash on their defense than any team in the league last offseason, um, $144 million to go get all these players that Steely wanted, whether it was Khalil Max, Bastion Joseph Day, JC Jackson, Austin Johnson, Morgan Fox, you can sort of go down the list. Yeah. And it's not turning into production. And you look at the quarterback, and you look at their offensive production over Staley's time here. And you say, hey, like, if you even have a league average defense, you're going to be a perennial contender and they can't even get there with a guy yeah. who got this job because of what he did with the Rams in 2020. So it really falls there. It's not an effort thing. It's not a motiv motivation thing. I, I truly believe the players, you know, believe in Staley. Um, he just has to put it together defensively and push the right buttons defensively from a scheme standpoint to, to put this defense in a position to even be like middle of the pack so that Justin Herbert has enough support to, to go and, and, and finish the season with a playoff berth and then, and then win some playoff games. Two defensive personnel questions. I'll just uh, double barrel it and you can tell me whatever order you want. One is, was the JC Jackson scratch about his off field stuff, or was that a message sender? And what do you think, you know, the results were? And then two is when I watch what, how they play defense, especially when they kind of drop into zone or a shell, it looks to me like Kenneth Walker doesn't move very well over the middle and that as good of a run defender as he sometimes is, that that's, get, that's getting exploited. So I guess one question is, what, what's with the J.C. Jackson scratch? And then second is, can anything be done about Walker in the middle in, in passing situations? Yeah, Murray, Kenneth Murray. Linebacker. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Kenneth Murray. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, so I got Walker on the brain yeah. because uh, he's coming in for the Seahawks with the Giants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a stud. Um, so yeah, with JC, it's, there's a lot of context that sort of goes into it, right? So okay. they signed him to this big contract last off season, five years, 82 and a half million. He comes in in training camp and looks great. Like it looks like he's going to be the guy that they paid for. Now at the end of August, he has a surprise ankle surgery, minor ankle surgery, um, to remove a bone spur and mm -hmm. misses the, the opener, uh, 
against the Raiders and then kind of rushes back a bit for the Chiefs game on Thursday night, plays in that game, and then misses the next game against Jacksonville. Uh, three weeks later is when he ruptured his patellar tendon, which as somebody who's been around the Giants for a long time, you, you know, we both covered Victor Cruz that season. You know, we know, you know, what that injury could mean for a player and also like the lack of precedent for like what a player will be after that injury. And so, you know, he comes back from that, makes it to the start of training camp. They're kind of ramping him up. And so heading into the season, I always expected that he was going to have some rust, you know, physically and more importantly, mentally, like being able to regain confidence in that knee. And like NFL games move so fast that if you are not 100% confident in your body, Mm -hmm. then it's really difficult to play any position on the field, but particularly cornerback, which is, in my opinion, the hardest position to play in the NFL outside of quarterback. And so they're working through this to figure out exactly what the right combination of defensive backs is. And I think for JC, it was just a moment for them to give him a day off so that he can reset and, and, you know, figure out what the best way to move forward to put himself in position to play good football. Now, from what I've been told, it had nothing to do with his legal issue. He, he didn't show up for a court date an arrest warrant was, was issued for him in, in Massachusetts. Um, everything I've been told that had nothing to do with him being a healthy scratch. Staley called it a, a coach's decision. Um, and to me, that's what it appeared to be. They went with Michael Davis and Asante Samuel on the outside and Jasir Taylor in the slot. And I thought that the secondary actually had a decent game against Justin Jefferson. I know the stats don't back that up, um, but they were doubling him and tripling him. And I, and I felt like they really executed their plan. It was one 52-yard touchdown that really like helped him explode, and that was just a missed tackle in the secondary from a backup safety who was in there, JT Woods, for Derwin James, who hurt his hamstring. So that's yeah. basically where things stand with JC. But like none of this is necessarily surprising to me, Like not like absent of the legal issue. In terms of the football side of things, nothing nothing about this is really surprising for me because I, I knew it was going to take time for him. I, I just always go back to that 2015 season where we were covering Victor Cruz and he had the calf issue and – you know, he was talking about how, you know, he came back too fast and it was overcompensation. That is like burned into my brain when I'm applying and then I'm applying that experience to what JC's go, going through and not. And so his slow start is not really surprising. But you guys sort of have to factor that all in. Like before that ankle surgery, he was playing really well in training camp. And I think he was on his way to being the guy that they wanted him to be. And since mm. then, it's just been one thing after another. Um, mm. As far as Kenneth Murray. He's been an inconsistent player throughout his career. Um, The Chargers moved up in the first round, back into the first round to draft him, and he's never really lived up to that. Now, I like to separate that because the player didn't draft himself in the first round. So a lot of people get on players like, you were a first-round pick. Why aren't you performing like a first-round pick? It's like, well, you know, it's not his fault that the Chargers whiffed on the talent evaluation. Now, like in, in year four, like I think he's playing the best football of his career. Now, as a player, like he is just going to be prone to, um, getting drawn in on play fakes. Like that's just a weakness in his game. Um, Got it. But like, I think what he's shown is he's um, a lot more consistent as a run defender. He's in the right gap more often. I think he's been better tackling in space. And I think he's been better in coverage outside of like a few mistakes where he's getting drawn in off play action. But the best game of his career, he played against Tennessee last in, in week two. Uh, he was tremendous against Derrick Henry. He was a big part of why the Chargers were able to, to slow him down. Um, and so like, I think that he is playing really well relative to like what he's shown in previous Hmm. seasons. And like, for me, he's not the issue for them. Like the big issue for them is 
a lot of these explosive plays in the passing game that they're allowing and and the corners and secondary members in general is just misplaying leverages and making mistakes in, in certain coverages. And like when I point to like what has to be fixed with the defense, they just have to stop giving up so many explosive plays and, and sort of, I don't want to say busting the coverages, but just like misplaying little minute details in the coverage um, that, you know, either like prevents their help from, you know, you know, being helpful um, or like, you know, allows receivers to, to gain advantage in the deep part of the field. Interesting. Yeah. So the stats right now in year one, the chargers had the fifth ranked scoring offense, 29th defense in year two of Staley, the offense was 13th. The defense improved to 21st, but now in year three, three, it's back to almost identical fifth in offensive scoring 28th in defensive scoring. And they are allowing the second most yards in the league per game, 450.7, which is more than the Bears. And Pop, if you are allowing anything worse than the Bears right now, it is very bad and you need to fix it. Um, go to the offense real quick before I ask you a little bit about some of the New York teams that I know you follow from afar. Um, is Quentin Johnston ready to step up with Mike Williams out? Because that's a huge loss. We're going to find out. You know, I mean, he he was a raw prospect coming out of TCU. Um, he had a lot of work to do um, in a number of different areas, whether that's the refinement of his routes, uh, the expansion of his route tree, improving his focus uh, with his hands because he had a lot of drops. Um, and then, you know, the mental side of things like uh, understanding NFL offenses, understanding leverages, understanding coverages, all of these things. Now, he has all the physical tools to be a great weapon. But that part of it, all of those things that he had to work on, like the Chargers felt like bringing him into this receiver room with Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, and Josh Palmer would give him the opportunity to really develop over a long period of time. Now that plan is out the window. So how can they find a way to use him and maximize his skill set? They're going to make adjustments to how they play offensively because they don't have Mike Williams anymore. And they have to sort of reconfigure things to make sure that Quentin Johnson is doing the things that he does best. Um, He has all of that, uh, that explosiveness that you want. Um, the question is can, schematically, can they put him in a position where that really expresses itself? Um, and so, you know, I think there's going to be, you know, bumps in the road for him as a rookie. Like you're going to see some drops, you're going to see some struggles. Like that's just the reality of who he is as a player right now. Um, but he's going to get his opportunity. He's going to be the guy here as that third receiver. He's going to get more snaps. Um, and it's sort of up to the coaching staff to, to sort of get him going and put him in the right positions. Finally, and it's funny, I'm not even asking you a question about Justin Herbert because he's so good. I mean, it's just, uh, it's amazing just to watch the guy. But going to another weapon, he has Keenan Allen. I uh, asked Adoree Jackson the other day in the Giants locker room about Devontae Adams because I was saying, I was watching the Sunday night game against the Steelers and his releases off the line are crazy. Like the corners never know which way he's going. His feet are so fast, you have to slow it down into slow motion. And I said, are there any other receivers who have comparable releases off the line? And very quickly, he said, I like Keenan Allen's too. Um, You know, from your vantage point, being closer to this guy, what makes Keenan so good? And then when he's healthy, like, is he a top, I don't know, five, seven wide receiver in the game? Yeah. Keenan Allen is your favorite player's favorite receiver. Like, that's the way I describe it. Like every, every like excellent receiver or corner in the league is watching Keenan Allen film because he's not physically dominant. But his um, technique as a route runner and, uh, and off the line with his releases, like you're saying, is, is second to nobody in the league, in my opinion. Um, what makes him great, like he, he can, when I've talked to him about it, he compares himself to like Kyrie Irving. Um, 
basketball. So like, and the, and the reason that that comparison makes sense to me is because Kyrie is all about um, like very subtle changes of acceleration um, to create separation on his drives. And then also like super creative in terms of how he finishes, but just like his change of pace is what makes him so elusive. And that's like what Keenan is. He's not faster than every player on the field, but when he decides to go a hundred percent is what allows him to create separation. And then he has like outstanding hands. And then his feel for leverage is just ridiculous. Like he will be able to feel where a corner is and where that corner's momentum is going and then beat that corner. However is necessary, whether it's sitting, whether it's breaking left, breaking right. And, and in Kel and they were doing this in Joe Lombardi's offense, but in Kellen Moore's offense specifically, they've just given him free reign. Like every, every play is basically an option route where they just give him uh, the mm. ability to, to sit wherever he wants to break wherever he wants to. And then he and Justin Herbert have been working for so long together that they just have like that innate type of connection where they know where Justin knows where, where Keenan's going to be. So to answer your question, like I think he's been a top 10 receiver for the last like six, seven years. Um, I, he doesn't have the, like the explosiveness that gets you the type of recognition that some of these other guys have. But, you know, in terms of like weapons on third down, like third and four to seven, like there's nobody better in the league in terms of getting open in those situations. And those plays are absolutely monumental in terms of like winning and losing NFL games. That's a fantastic explanation, both from Keenan about his skills and, from you about what makes him such a great receiver. Uh, there was one I forgot to ask you too, because it's in all fairness, you know, Staley, I think is constantly the one being talked about, but I do think even though the chargers have a lot of talent, they also frequently are hurt. Some of these players. Mm. And like you said, sometimes they've drafted a guy somewhere where it really maybe they were the reaching for the player. And I wanted to know, you know, as you being on the inside, like how much does Telesco bear the, uh, the frustrations of what the defense looks like and what the roster looks like. And if the team does underachieve again, because to me, it feels like everybody's pointing at the coach, but I do see from the outside, at least, you know, there are reasons I think from both the front office and coaching standpoint, why everybody should share the blame, but how do you, how do you see it? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, this was a big season for everyone involved in the organization. And, and we talk about Tom Telesco, 11 seasons, two playoff wins. Like, look around the league and find me another GM that hasn't produced that has been in his position as long as Tom Telesco has. And so, like, you know, and that's nothing against him as a talent evaluator. I think he's a really good talent evaluator. Um, I think he's a good GM, but it's it's a results-based business. And if you're not winning, like, at some point, you know, you sort of have to think about making a change there. Um, You know, Bill Walsh said something, you know, in the 80s that Theo Epstein actually quoted in his like, you know, goodbye letter to Red Sox fans after he left in like 2000, what, six or seven or whatever, that like every 10 years, you need a change of leadership. Like even if things are going well, you just need a new new voice because things get stale after 10 years. And in this case, like they're over 10 years and they haven't had the results. And so like, I kind of go back to that, that, you know, quote from Bill Walsh about like, you know, it might be time to bring in a new voice, but like, you know, the roster construction aspect of it obviously falls on the GM, but a lot of these moves were like driven by Staley, which is makes it kind of difficult to to separate. Uh. And so what Tom Telesco does really well as a GM is he he always listens to his coaches and he says, what do you need? And he goes and gets it. And like the Kenneth Murray pick was driven by, you know, Anthony Lynn and Gus Bradley because they felt like they needed Bobby Wagner in the middle of their defense because obviously Gus came from Seattle. They needed that star middle linebacker who could be that player sideline to sideline run pass 
And so that's why they moved up and they took Kenneth Murray. Oh man, that's now, like, tunnel tunnel vision. Yeah. Right. yeah. But at the end of the day, like the GM is making the final call and, and the buck stops with him. But you look at some of these moves, like, you know, Khalil Mack, like Brandon Staley coached him personally as an edge rushers coach for, for the bears under Vic Fangio and like has a very close relationship with him. Sebastian Joseph day played for Staley with the Rams. Morgan Fox played for Staley with the Rams. You know, J.C. Jackson, like after they signed him, J.C. Jackson walked into Brandon Staley's office and Brandon Staley started reading off his notes of the film study that he did on Jackson preparing for free agency and all the things that he loved about J.C. And so it gets Hmm. a little bit difficult to like say how much is on this person and how much is on this person. But what I do know is that Staley has been very involved with a lot of these personnel decisions in terms of telling Telesco who he wants and what he wants. And so in a sense, like if Tom Telesco is going out and finding these players that Brandon Staley wants and they're not fitting into the defense and they're not playing the way that Staley expected, like you can sort of decide for yourself, like who you want to put the blame on. But another one is Eric Kendricks. Like Drew Tranquil was a Tom Telesco draft pick fourth rounder who tuned into a really good player, had a career year and Brandon Staley wanted to move on from Drew and wanted Eric Kendricks because he knew Kendricks was going to become available because of cap reasons. And so Mm. you sign a 31-year-old linebacker instead of re-signing a guy you developed who's 26 coming off a career season, Kendricks injures his hamstring in week one and still hasn't played. And so, like, who are you putting the blame on for for that signing, right? Not not saying that Kendricks isn't going to come back and and be a great player, but, you know, that's the risk that you you take with with signing players over 30. So Mm. it gets a little bit difficult. Does he deserve blame? Absolutely. The results are the results, but I think that context is important. Interesting. Right. So Staley's so involved that if for some reason we see a, a, a slide this season and Staley loses his job and Telesco stays, it would be possibly due to the fact that the head coach has so much say in the personnel as well. Hopefully it turns around, though. I do see building blocks. I've kept you much longer than I promised to. So let me just get out of here with two quick questions about the New York teams. You grew up in this area. You watch Big Blue. You used to cover Big Blue. What do you think of what Brian Dable's team looks like in these first few weeks of the 2023 season? Yeah, I mean, I thought the Chargers should have hired Brian Dayball instead of Brandon Staley, and they were they had interviewed him, and he was an option. Um, I think he's a really good coach. I, I think, like, you know, with what happened last season for the Giants, I think expectations were probably a little bit too high for this team coming into this season. Like, I think that's important to to keep in mind. You know, it's a blessing and a curse when you come in in year one and overperform because then you're setting the standard that's probably unattainable based on the the talent that you have on the roster. Um, mm. And so, like, it always felt like this season was going to be a step back for the Giants um, just because of, you know, how much they overperformed last year with probably not as much talent as you, you normally need to, like, get into the playoffs and finish with the record that they did. Um, yeah. So not, like, totally surprised if things are a little bit worse than they were last year just based on, like, you know, um, the talent that they have and like where they are and sort of the, the process of building this thing. A measured evaluation. And finally, the Jets, can they afford to roll Zach Wilson out onto the field even one more game? Or do you see this completely collapsing and caving in on itself if Robert Sala continues to sell that Zach is the guy? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what they're doing. Like, I don't like, cause, cause <laughs> Like what, and Rich Semini wrote about it. Like you can't overstate what that does in a locker room. Like guys know, guys know, like either this dude can play or this dude can't play. And if the whole locker room feels like the dude can't play and you keep trotting him out there instead of putting in somebody who they feel like can give you a chance, you're going to lose the locker room. And I think Robert Sala is a great leader. Like I think he showed that 
you know, in hard knocks when we got an inside look there, I think he's a good coach, but these are the types of decisions where you have to think about the entire team and what message are you sending by putting a guy out there who clearly isn't over his head. Now, like, is Zach Wilson, like, like bereft of talent? No, but like everyone, regardless of how much football you watch, regardless of how long you've been watching football can tell that he doesn't have confidence and that he's thinking too much. Um, and so like, in my opinion, with the roster that they have, like, I think you have to go and, and make a change there. What that change is, I don't know, but you know, it's, it's shocking to me that they are even considering, you know, throwing Zach Wilson out there again. That's really where I'm at with it. Popper, this has been an awesome, awesome episode. Guys, remember we are sponsored by bet online. We are also sponsored by estate 98 coffee. It's an Essencia day cafe from El Salvador. I started in 1798. You basically put a tablespoon and ice in a glass, stir it. It's ready to drink. I drink it all the time when I do the Talking Ball podcast. This has been Daniel Popper, senior athletic writer covering the Los Angeles Chargers. But more importantly, Pear Pear on Spotify. Go follow, go listen. And Popper, can you get us out of here on an air horn, please? Bam, bam, bam. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate you having me, man. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.